Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, my titans, warlords, enforcers, and all my lovely new listeners. Today I bring you a set of four stories. One true account of a ghastly, ghostly experience by Paige Kramer, titled The Little Blue Baby, a tale about a haunted train, a near-death ghostly bus ride, and lastly, when a man meets a being from another plane of existence that professors they've met before. A unique set of tales for sure. Your first tale is especially unique in that it's the only story that I've ever narrated that has its origins or original tale shared in a poem version first. A big thank you to you, Paige Kramer, for sending your encounter through. I can't wait to share it with everyone. So, let's turn off the lights, turn up the sound, and get ready for something creepy. This happened when I was probably around five years old. I was sitting on the couch watching Spongebob, waiting for my grandma to get home from work. I got a weird feeling and looked to my right. There was a baby with his mouth open, looking like he was crying but not making a sound. His face was blue, and he was wearing red footy pajamas. My eyes widened and I froze. For a minute, I felt really sad, but I didn't know why. He then crawled into the laundry room and he seemed to absorb into the ceiling, which was really strange. After that, I screamed and ran to my mum. She took me around and nobody was there, but I was obviously still freaked out and wouldn't leave my mum's side for the rest of the night. Later, we found out that the attic was directly above the laundry room. For months, I had terrible night terrors. Most of the time, I didn't remember what my dreams were about but I woke up to my mum staring at me. But sometimes I would have dreams of feeling terrified, trying to hide in a dark room. The baby was there, and he would take my hand. When he touched my hand, it was ice cold. I then would hear loud footsteps coming from the hall and a man humming. I then would wake up screaming, Please, don't kill the baby! Later, my mum met a man named Neil, and we moved in with him to a different city one hour away. The dreams stopped for the most part when I was away from that house, but I would still hear the faint cry of a baby when I was alone, which was super creepy. I would still go visit on weekends though, due to my grandma still living there. She claims she never saw anything, but she wasn't going to tell me if she had. When I would visit, the experiences got a lot worse. I don't know if it was because I hadn't been there in a while or what it was. I remember it particularly this one night. I was laying in bed trying to watch TV. I was probably nine at the time. The TV got really quiet and no matter how much I turned it up, I couldn't hear it. I never slept there without the TV blaring due to being scared of the silence. I started to internally freak out at how quiet it was. I then heard whispers of a woman coming from the dining room. I couldn't make out what she was saying. And I thought that maybe my grandma was on the house phone, trying
trying to be quiet as not to wake me up. I called out. Grandma! But then the voices stopped. My heart was hammering as I pulled the covers up. When the whispering came back again, they were loud and seemed like they were right in my ear. The woman whispered, Poison. Poison. He poisoned me. He killed me. No, no, no. He's going to kill my boy. Please help us. Please help us. I covered my ears, pressing my hands into my ears so hard it hurt. I remember saying aloud, Leave me alone. I can't help you. I lay down and cried, still covering my ears as I heard stomping footsteps, kind of like in my dream. Then I heard the baby cry and a horrible gurgling sound. Then I heard a man humming. After that, I think I passed out, and I awoke up the next day and went outside and refused to go back inside. I sat on the porch until my mum got there to pick me up. I remember having dreams that seemed more like visions of what had happened in bits and pieces later that night. I rarely even went back, and when I did, I made my mum stay with me and I wouldn't stay the night. Eventually, my grandma had 18 consecutive strokes and was in a coma for a while. Miraculously, she somehow managed to not only wake up, but learn to walk and talk again. The house was in disrepair before this happened, but it was even worse after. Due to her bad health, we moved her into a senior apartment in the city we live in now. Since I haven't been back to that house in years, I haven't had any dreams about it. I also haven't heard the cry of a baby. Once I was older, I found out that the creepy man that lived there had many wives in the past, and he was somewhat of a recluse. I think the woman that whispered to me was one of his wives, and he never wanted a child. He seemed in a rush to move out of the house and left everything there. A week after he moved out, he died of unknown causes. I believe he killed himself. I don't talk about this with many people due to them thinking I'm crazy if I do. I've always been sensitive to ghosts, I guess you could say. I've had quite a few other experiences as well that have been unrelated, but this one traumatized me for years. Thank you for taking the time to read through my lengthy explanation. You asked for it. Paige, thank you for sharing this with us all. And I really appreciate people sharing these kind of experiences. And no, I don't think you're crazy. Not one iota. Once again, Paige, thanks for sharing. Big Six the Ghost Train I was 12 years old, spending a fair amount of time at my grandmother's cabin at Pine Grove State Furnace. Pine Grove has always been haunted, mostly due to Fuller Lake, a water-filled old open-pit iron mine. Though the park service has gone so far as to send divers down to the bottom to prove that no one was killed, many people have seen ghostly horses stampeding from the old stables to the lake and into the water, making it glow a deep blue before disappearing. My story, as far as I'm aware, has never been duplicated or replicated. It involves an old iron horse that wasn't quite ready to be scrapped. I was walking back along the old rail bed that runs from Laurel Lake, 
a man-made lake slightly larger than Fuller. At dusk in June, I did not fear being alone in the woods after dark. I knew the woods and the mountains as well as the back of my hand, just like my father did before me. It had just turned fully dark when I noticed something peculiar. It was silent, dead silent. People that are from the woods will tell you that it is almost never completely silent. There's always some critter rustling through the leaves, a cicada or cricket chirping, a great horned owl hooting its dominance. The fact that there was nothing unnerved me and made me anxious to get back to the cozy little cabin. So I increased my pace. I was more or less speed walking along this deserted silent trail. The only sound I heard was my sneakers crunching on the cinders. Tall pine trees on both sides of the trail cast shadows down on me, making it difficult to see. I was just reflecting on how dark it was when I heard a sound I will never forget for as long as I live. The long, lonesome wail of a steam whistle. I recognized it from a trip to the Strasbourg Railway when I was younger. Nothing in the woods could replicate that sound. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I looked around. The place was as empty as a church on Monday. I was in a deserted part of the trail. The nearest cabin was two miles away in the opposite direction. I simply told myself that my mind was playing tricks in me and kept walking. Then I heard it again and it was getting closer. A faint light appeared behind me, so faint that it was barely recognizable as a light source. I told myself that it was swamp gas, it is quite a marshy area around the trail, and that my mind was continuing to pull sound out of nothing to make up for the silence. I kept walking, thinking about fresh biscuits and wild grape jam to take my mind off things when I noticed that the light was slowly growing brighter. I had seen swamp gas lights before, they usually only lasted moments and weren't terribly bright. The main thing that told me that it wasn't my mind was the ground. It was vibrating. The hairs on the back of my neck stood straight as arrows. Earthquakes weren't unheard of, but it felt and sounded like something heavy pounding the ground rather than a jarring movement of an earthquake. I was properly scared, thinking about wendigos and other supernatural monsters that lived in the woods. I stepped off the trail and crouched down by a thick pine tree, waiting for whatever it was to go by and let me go on with my business. I became aware of a slow snorting sound, making me again think of the giant 80-foot wendigos that turned people into cannibals with their touch. I also realized that the light was growing brighter and the rumbling of the ground was slowing down. It came around a long sweeping curve at a crawl slowing to a stop in front of me. It was a big six. A 2-10-2 Baltimore and Ohio operated locomotive, number 6666. It hissed to a stop, its giant driving wheels resting on the bare cinders. It was shrouded in a light blue mist of steam and wore a deep black coat of paint that seemed to suck all available light into it except the bright light of the front spotlight. The steam mist, when it hit me, turned cold. I bit hard on my knuckles, trying to control myself. Two blue lights were in its cab, as if on cue. One hopped down and crouched in the bushes for a moment. I heard a sound of stressed steel and a clack. 
and an invisible switch had been thrown by the ghost fireman. The blue light then took the opportunity to walk slowly around his 91 foot long, evil looking locomotive before casually climbing back up the ladder into the cab. I then saw the firebox open and I heard such a scream. The kind of scream you'd never want to hear again. The sound of someone being roasted alive. <laughs> Almost as quickly as it had opened, the firebox door shut with a clang and then a long, soulful, sad song of the whistle chimed again. Big Six puffed a blue cloud of steam up out of its short, black smokestack as it rolled away slowly across the invisible switch. It took a sharp, almost 90 degree turn, much too sharp for any real locomotive, and puffed away into the woods. The whole encounter lasted probably no more than four or five minutes, but believe me, I had seen more than enough. I did the rest of the trail at a dead sprint and didn't stop until I was in the cabin with the thick wooden door locked behind me. My grandparents, parents, and friends have tried unsuccessfully to get their story out of me, but I had never told about it until this day. The story about how I'd seen one of the scrapped big sixes that burned people for fuel. The final bus of Route 375. The story happened on the bleak night of November 14th, 1995 in Beijing, China. An old man, some also say an old woman, was waiting at a bus stop at midnight, picking up a conversation with the only person at the stop who was a quiet young gentleman. When the midnight bus 375, the last bus for Route 375 from the Yuanming Huan bus terminus, finally came, they both boarded on it. The old man took a seat near the front of the bus while the young man sat a couple of rows behind him. There was no other passenger along with them than the driver and a decent lady ticket collector. After a while, the driver spotted two shadows by the side of the road, waving at the bus. The driver stopped and when the doors opened, three people got in. There were two men who were supporting a third man between them, holding him up with his shoulders. The man in the middle was looking disheveled and his head was bowed so nobody could see his face, and there was a dismal calm atmosphere inside the bus. Shortly after that, the old man picked up a fight with the young man under some silly pretext of stealing his wallet. The alteration escalated and the bus driver forced them both off the bus. When they got off and the bus zoomed away, the old man was no longer angry and he told the young man that he had saved their lives. Because the new three passengers did not have feet, and were floating. They were not living people, he said. They went to the nearest police station to report this event, but nobody believed them. But the very next day, the bus company issued a statement. Last night, the final bus for Route 375 has vanished, along with the driver and ticket lady. The police immediately chased down that old man and young man, who were assumed to be mentally ill, when they tried to raise the alarm earlier, and they were both interviewed on the news. On the third day, the police revealed the allegedly missing bus in a water reservoir about 100 kilometers away from its destination, Xiangshan, also called Fragrant Hills. Inside the bus, there were three very badly decomposed bodies. And the mysteries surrounding these findings include, one, the bus did not have enough petrol for it to keep going that far after a whole day's worth of travel. Two, the police found 
that the petrol tank was filled with fresh blood instead of petrol. 3. The corpses found were too decomposed for just 48 hours. Even if it was summer, the process of decomposition would not be this quick. An autopsy confirmed that there has been no intentional meddling with the bodies. And 4. The police went through all the security camera tapes set up for the various entrances to access the reservoir but have found nothing out of the ordinary. To this day, it remains an unsolved mystery. I met a man once who knew everything about me and said he'd jump off the San Francisco Bridge many, many years ago, even though I met him in Tybee Island, Georgia. This has haunted me for a long time. I was about 19 or 20 at the time and I was living in Savannah, GA. I drank a lot, had a crappy fake ID. I worked this terrible job as a grunt laborer. The kind where you go to those temp labor agencies like Able Body and Labor Finders. I'd show up at 4am, work until 5pm, and drink myself to sleep after only taking home maybe $60 for the day. I was supposed to go into work this particular morning, but I decided to skip. It's a labor agency, they'll just find somebody else. I call the girlfriend and tell her I want to go to the beach, Taibee. I had already started drinking. She comes over. We hop in my big, ugly van, pick up some rods, and head to the beach. I decided to have a drink across from the beach at this little bar. This is where the story gets interesting. Shortly after ordering my drinks, I get this really weird feeling. I became hyper aware of my surroundings. The door opened and I see this guy walking in and out of my peripheral vision. There was a seat between me and my girlfriend, but the bar was empty at like 9am and he could have sat anywhere else, yet he chooses to sit right between her and I. Then he starts doing this thing with his fingers. The bar top was reflective and he takes his fingers like two little legs and just starts walking with them, skating with them on the top of the counter. This isn't something out of the ordinary, but I took notice because when I was in school, I did that all the time. I pretended I had rollerblades on my fingers and that I was skating around my desk. I hated school and was always distracting myself, so I became kind of mesmerized for some reason. That's when he looks at me and in this really think of kind of Germanic or Nordic accent, he says, I noticed you're a man who pays attention to detail. I am also a man who pays attention to detail. Now, before I continue, I have to describe this guy. He had this short, spiky hair that was bleached at the tips, kind of like a late 90s style. He had really expensive clothes on, like a nice Prada leather jacket, nice designer jeans, really nice boots. He seemed like a kind of gay guy with awesome fashion sense and a really distinctive taste. I always remember this because I think to myself, some weird homeless crazy guy couldn't have afforded those clothes. Anyway, the other thing that stuck out was his eyes. They were piercing grey. It reminded me of like a husky's eyes, but his pupils just stayed this disturbing pinpoint size. They were just extremely small, which caused his look to be kind of terrifying. His teeth were normal, right? But not at the same time. I don't know how to explain it. They were sharper than they should have been, as if they were filed slightly. 
His hands were normal, but his fingernails were slightly long and pointed as if he deliberately did it. He kept licking his teeth, too, as if he was salivating. The thing about this guy is that you look at him, and everything seems normal, but off at the same time. So you're questioning if you're crazy for thinking this. This guy then begins to start talking about the relationship between me and my girlfriend, but really strangely. He's talking about how beautiful she is and how I should pay more attention to her. I was kind of a dick to her. Shortly after he began talking like this, I had this almost knowing feeling coming over me. Like, I knew this guy was not a human. I look at my girlfriend and say, You need to leave. She just kind of looks at me like, She knows too. Without a word of protest, she gets up quietly and leaves. Later, I learn that she went next door to get a coffee. That's when this guy literally says to me, with the utmost confidence, You were supposed to go fishing today. He points at the beach across the street. I would have drowned you in that ocean. And I shit you not, he fucking hissed. Again, for some reason, this overwhelming calm had come over me. I just ask, Who are you? He answers back with this crazy guttural language like, But it was really long. It sounded Arabic or Hebrew or something. I just, for some reason, without skipping a beat, and I have no idea why I was so calm to this day, ask, say it in a way that I can understand. He says, you can call me Jimmy C. I jumped off the San Francisco bridge years ago, and we've been watching you. From there on out, he never referred to himself as me, or I, but only we. The conversation became something very strange after this. He was saying things like, We see you taking a bath. We too wish to feel the warmth of the water and the comfort of the steam. He kept buying me drinks too, specifically whiskey sours. It was like he had an endless supply of money. And he smoked Marlboro ultralight cigarettes. After I don't know how long, because I lost sense of time, kind of, I told him I'm going to leave. I walk next door, I get my girlfriend and she's stone silent. We start driving home, don't say a word. Then I just ask, do you know what that was? And she just says, that was a demon. This girl had parents that were scientists. She was really analytical, completely non-religious and that was the first thing she said out of her mouth. Now, I didn't say this part before because, to me, this is the most important aspect of the story, so I'll say it now. Because it's what happened after this that screwed me up for fucking years. The last thing this Jimmy C guy said to me before I left is this. Look, look at, at my, my car. car. I look outside. I see one of those newer Volkswagen Beetles. It was white. What, what does, does the license plate say? I look at the plate and it literally says, Fears. He looks me dead in the eyes and says, Next time you see me, I'll be driving a Mercedes with the license plate, Utopia. Stupid, right? That night I was still calm. I don't know why. I felt like that guy on office space after his hypnotherapist died right in front of him and 
he was really zen. But my girlfriend started having terrible nightmares of this guy's head just staring at her in her dreams. Weeks went by, and that's when the encounter started affecting me. I found myself becoming paranoid about that black fucking Mercedes. Every black car I saw, I checked if it was a Mercedes. If it was, I immediately looked at the license plate. I started doing it when I watched TV or movies as well. I couldn't stop. Now, I'm going to fast forward a bit. About 10 years go by. I'm 29, so this is just recently, and in silence, when I'm alone, when I'm drinking, I often think about this encounter. I still look at black Mercedes every time they pass, but I'm not so much anxious about it anymore, as curious. And I remember that my girlfriend at the time always kept a journal. By now, I'm pretty sure that I'm insane. Maybe I was drunk, maybe I'm not remembering any of this correctly. After years of trying to find news articles of a Jimmy C that committed suicide off the San Francisco Bridge, looking at black cars and so on, I feel like I'd grown out of it. Yet still, I had to know. So last year, I tracked down my ex-girlfriend. We ended on bad terms. I found out she's a school teacher in Wisconsin, has married a woman, and is actually trying to have a child. I figure she's not going to talk to me, but I send her a message anyway. I ask her if she can find the journal from that day, because I have to know if her events line up with mine. Sure enough, she had it, and it contained even more detail than what I remembered because she had literally written it at the coffee shop next door right after it happened. Here's what she sent me. Notes on what happened at TB Island. GA. On the first Tuesday in December 2005, drove there during the day and the sunshine was getting me down. Kept thinking about earlier how I'd gone to his house after waking up there. And he woke up early, took a shower, came back and woke me up. Acted very sweet. Then I went home, took a shower, came back to go with him to TV, and he'd gotten drunk already and was teasing me, being sort of an ass. I even threatened to go home once, but I stayed, feeling that I really should go to TV with him. But I was excited to show TV to Will during the day since I knew it well and he'd never seen it. He talked about how it all reminded him of his childhood as we drove through the salt marshes and over bridges, the sun, the palm trees. I'd grown up in the fog got to TB and he wanted to get a couple of beers even though we had rum in the trunk. Well, really the back of the van. The first bar we went to carded Will and so we left, remarking that everyone in the place had given us strange looks as soon as we walked in. Went over to Franny's and a couple of doors down. Went over to Fanny's a couple of doors down, all in the area of the beach by the pier. I decided I didn't want beer after all and told the woman I just wanted a glass of water. Will had a PBR. Only cost a dollar. Noticed a VW Beetle, white, parked outside when I came in, but did not see Jimmy enter. Will pointed out a man sitting one stool down from me, drumming his fingers strangely on the stainless steel bar, more like dancing with his nails, stretching his long fingers. Thought immediately that he was gay. Will and I watched and talked in whispers about it for a few minutes before he, the stranger, spoke. He first talked about how I noticed him dancing with his nails, the words he used, then looked at his nails, surprised, and said they looked like shit. I laughed, getting a weird feeling about the guy. He then spoke about how it's important to notice details, and he liked it when people paid attention. That he pays attention to everything, that he knows that I do too. His eyes are, some word I can't decipher, blue and grey, 
He has blonde hair and a narrow pointed nose above pale lips that cover crooked teeth. Not very white, almost like fangs. His teeth are all I can look at until I look him in the eye. Something I normally won't do until I know a person at least a little. And he seems to evade me. He asks if I love Will. Doesn't use his name or mine. Without hesitation, I nod and say yes. He asks Will, do you love her? And he looks uncomfortable, laughs a little bit and says, yeah, I guess so. Then the guy says that I am beautiful, that if Will won't love me unconditionally as I do him, someone else will. He touches my hair and says that I am a creature of God. He then tells us that he walked three miles up and down the beach and it sucked. Said some things about God's green earth. Told a story about a scorpion that asked a frog for a ride across the river, who then stung the frog. Told the frog that it was in his nature, and then they both enjoyed their last minutes of life because they both would then die. He told Will he knew him and kept trying to get to him through me. He'd say, I'm not hitting on you, girl, but continually told me I was beautiful. He tried to piss Will off, kept saying that he knew him, said he is in his room at night. He's what crawls on Will's back. Told Will his glasses, the aviator sunglasses that I gave him, were cheap. That my glasses were perfect because I see through them rather than hide behind them. Then he said that I was perfection, that I was one step away from becoming myself. Earlier, he talked about fashion. Thought my glasses might be Armani. Said Prada was his favourite person. When I noticed that his orange leather jacket had a red rectangle of fabric on the left breast that said Prada. He said to Will that he knew who he was, to which Will replied that he knew who he was. The stranger left to go to his car to get money for more drinks. He had offered to buy us all a shot of tequila and already bought Will a beer. As he walked out, he pointed to the license plate. His car was the white beetle outside. The license plate read, Fierce. While he was gone, Will asked me if I knew who the man was. I nodded saying I had an idea. He said, yeah, but you think you're crazy every time you think of it, don't you? I was thinking the man was the devil or something close. When asked where he was from, he didn't answer. We thought he could have been from TB, but he said he didn't live there. Asked him where he lived and he just started talking about his other car. A Mercedes Benz with a plate that said Utopia. Asked if he lived in his car and he said no. Utopia's doors are close to me. Will asked him where he learned all he was talking about. He said he could speak five languages, English being the most important because it is trained and often spoke a few sentences in a language I could not recognize. And he said he'd lived in San Francisco where he jumped off a bridge and died. This is the point where I told her to leave. That's when he said he would have drowned me in the ocean. Started referring to himself as we and finally told me that the next time I would see him, it would be in that black Mercedes. When I read what she had written, literally that day, I knew that I wasn't imagining the details wrong, that this actually happened. This is probably the single most frustrating and scary thing that has ever happened to me. I want to imagine it's just a normal crazy guy, but unless you saw it and felt it and heard him talk about all the little details of what you were supposed to do that day when only you knew it, you just can't understand the impact of it. It's been 10 years, and my only solace really is that my ex-girlfriend was there to corroborate. 
that communication, where I reached out to her, actually caused us to be on good terms again after a decade. It seems to have been something that bothered her just as much as it bothered me. And still to this day, even though I'm living 10,000 miles away in Southeast Asia, I can't stop looking for that car. I can't stop thinking about Jimmy C's twisted face. I wonder if he still crawls on my back. And if the fear I feel at night, often to where I must drink myself to sleep, or find a one-night stand just so I don't feel alone, is him or them watching me. Well, listeners, our first experience of the little blue baby was truly creepy. The fact that the voices were being echoed throughout the visions of ghostly encounters would have compounded how intense those experiences were. Not to mention the constant fear and paranoia of thinking, what else could I see? I don't blame you at all, Paige, for being as scared and freaked out as you were. Luckily, you were able to get away from that place, and not a moment too soon. Still, it's absolutely awful to hear what that child and mother went through. Goodness. Now, moving on to our fictional tales, the creepy train that runs off burning souls was really a lot of fun to narrate. The whole concept of a train burning the soul of the dam to keep it running was a really interesting concept. Little Easter egg, I modulated the vocals of a screaming crowd to produce the train whistle. Like I said, I have fun during these sorts of tales. <laughs> the creepy bus trip where an old-timer saves the life of a young man can't help but feel bad for the driver and ticket woman though, mind you. Could they have also been dead? And the whole bus ride was simply a haunted ruse. It's hard to say. And lastly, Jimmy C. A slow burner story that really had me thinking about the meaning of what he was saying. The car license plate, the demonic physical attributes, and the two different perspectives from the protagonist. A truly mysterious and mind-boggling tale. I hope you loved them. In fact, mates, I hope you enjoyed all these stories. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe so you can listen to three episodes a week, fresh off the press. And if you have 10 seconds spare, hop into iTunes and leave me a review, it really does help. And lastly, if you really like what I do, visit my Patreon page to support and donate to the show, where all your support goes into production. Now, I want to thank my superstars that support me. First up is my own nighty titan Maya, queen of the cats, a superstar that Discus throws this podcast into space and keeps it flying. Thank you so much for your support, mate. I've been able to cover subscription expenses and work on new content that's coming up, particularly around research and true crime. Recently, I've been diving deeper into the RX software as well that helps me remaster old-time radio episodes. I'm constantly looking at ways to improve my knowledge and skill set in this space, and thanks to you, I know I can. So cheers, Maya. Your support makes a massive difference. My first white tea warlord, Leza Bauer, mate. Thank you so much for your support. I've been slowly chipping away at the OTR script, and I've been squirreling away roles and focusing on spitting out lines for prospective actors, but still in the early stages. It's taking a bit of time, but totally worth it. And I can't wait to put some time aside this weekend to respond to your awesome email. Looking forward to it, mate. Thanks, Leza. And my second white tea warlord, Paige Kramer. Thank you so much for today's story. The little blue baby, truly, truly creepy, and a freaky ghost encounter that I soon won't forget. Also, I appreciate you allowing me to narrate your encounter and simply recounting tales like this can be really, really difficult. So that's not lost on me. Thank you 
and I look forward to more real encounters or stories you send my way. Thanks again, Paige. And my living tea legends that keep this podcast pumping, my ill grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Divided by Zero. Thank all of you for being amazing. Not a day goes by that I'm not thankful for your support. You guys and gals are brilliant. Stay awesome and I'll see you Friday for more creepy and weird stories. As always, mates, till next we meet.